I was born in the mid-1960s. I was born in the mid-1990s. <laughs> in my home, we had a TV where we could get four channels, and I needed to get up and change the TV manually if I wanted to see something different. I grew up with hundreds of channels to choose from, or could record anything that I missed in the telephone in our house when I was a child was a rotary phone, and as I got older, if I wanted to make private calls, I'd find a payphone somewhere. <laughs> I grew up walking around with a phone in my pocket. When I started ministry in the early 1990s, I, uh, I, I wrote my, hand, my sermons out in longhand, and sometimes my mom would type them up on her word processor. My elementary school had a computer lab with like dozens of computers and we grew up like playing typing games against each other pretty much every day at school on the computer. I rarely listen to or watch podcasts. I much prefer reading magazine articles or buying the book. Uh, it's not uncommon for me that my sermon prep includes podcasts, YouTube videos, stuff like that. I listen to the, to the radio in my car if I want to listen to music or CDs that I buy. I subscribe to a streaming service where I can listen to millions of songs every month for a, a monthly fee. I read some articles online, but three or four days a week I buy a newspaper. I just like to have a newspaper as I'm eating breakfast or lunch. And I subscribe to online news articles that are delivered to my email daily. I also have a little digital reader that has, again, like pretty much unlimited access to books. Um, and sometimes we dress a little bit differently, okay? For the first 10 years of my time here at McBick, I wore a jacket and a tie every week. And even when I wasn't preaching, we'd sit up here on the uh, platform in a chair. It was tough to act like I was listening for two consecutive services. <laughs> um, if you did some fast math there, you would have heard that Lane is about 30 years older than me. And that can kind of serve maybe as an easy target for some joking and prodding. But the reality is that 30 years isn't that much time. In the grand scheme of human history, 30 years is really just a drop in the ocean. But the amount of technological advancement that's happened in the last like 50 to 100 years, it's really magnified some of those changes that you heard. There's been very few moments in history where people separated by only 30 years would have had such different childhoods as Lane and I have had, but this technological or sometimes called digital revolution has done just that, created those differences. And the even crazier thing is that this kind of revolution wasn't just a one-time moment. It's something technology continues to advance at kind of like an exponential rate. I could probably do a similar exercise with someone maybe only 15 years younger than me, and the, the differences would also be glaring. Then, on top of all that, if that wasn't enough, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of turned the world upside down. And many sociologists, historians, they agree that the pandemic didn't necessarily create any like new trends in culture, but what it did was actually greatly accelerate trends that were kind of already happening. So for example, working from home, before COVID, uh, working from home I think was growing in popularity a bit, but now, post-COVID, it's basically just commonplace. And we saw kind of a similar acceleration and trend in our church family. And this is really what drove us to plan this sermon series that we're kicking off today. As we moved through the pandemic, we're able to meet more regularly in person. There was still a significant amount, and still are, a significant amount of people viewing our services online. Um, and so we started to ask, as a staff, we started to ask questions like, 
how do we engage this group of people who we can't really see, we're, we're not really with in person? Should we adjust this in-person experience to kind of meet the needs of some of our online audience? Is this kind of just a temporary solution for us, or is it going to be part of our kind of like long-term approach to ministry? And so, as we were asking those questions, we were also at the same time reading this book by a Silicon Valley author and pastor named Jay Kim called Analog Church, where the name of this series comes from. And the book's subtitle, I think, is a helpful starting place for what we mean when we talk about analog and digital. So the subtitle is this, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. There's a lot of complexity to the differences between analog and digital, but for our purposes, digital is really anything that happens kind of virtually or electronically, and analog would be anything that happens kind of in the real, material, physical world. And so our goal as we kick off and throughout this sermon series is to re-examine some of our church's values and in a very digital age kind of reinforce what we believe to be important parts about church life, things like scripture, worship, community, discipleship, and a bit of a spoiler alert, things that we think happen best in an analog world. You understand that every church needs to reach emerging generations to survive. A couple of years after McBick planted a church back in 2014, I noticed that our church was getting older. We launched MCC in 2014 by sending out um, 75 young couples, uh, married young couples with children and single adults who were between the ages of most of them between 25 and late 30s. And after several years, we still hadn't recouped that age population at McBick. Our staff and I were getting older, and I was aware of a rule of thumb that says a pastor's sweet spot for communication is people 10 years younger and 10 years older. And so as a 50-year-old, uh, my sweet spot was people between 40 and 60, and sure enough, as I looked around McBick, it seemed like many of the people that were coming to our church at that time were 55 and up, and we weren't seeing a lot of younger people uh, coming to our church for the first time. And so as I discussed that with our church board and staff, we made a conscious effort to hire some younger staff members, realizing that as we naturally all grow older, we need to be intentional about connecting with younger generations. And so over a two-year span, approximately six years ago, um, we were going through some shuffling. Some people had left. We, had, we needed some new, new personnel. We hired four staff members who were at that time ages 32 years of age and younger. Our new hires significantly lowered the age of our staff and brought new ideas and fresh perspectives to our church. And one of the things that I've come to greatly appreciate about Evan, um, Cody, um, Cindy, and Jen or as we've, had as we've had discussions about how do we reach younger people, they've been very adamant about the fact that they love who McBick is. They like our values and our DNA, and while they want to see some changes to help us connect with younger generations, they don't want to see the core of who McBick cha is change. And that gave me a lot of confidence. That's given me confidence that while we need to stay fresh and keep making changes, we're not going to sacrifice depth by attempting to be more culturally relevant. Lane used the word relevant there, which I think we'd all agree is a, generally a positive word, um, even in relation to church. As we think about church, we'd rather be relevant than the opposite being irrelevant, right? And so we think of that in a good light. But uh, Jay Kim, the author of the book, he tells the story of his friend Jake, which paints a little bit of a different picture, I think. 
Um, so I want to share that story. Jake is an adult who works a very digital job. He's an electronic dance music artist and DJ. So if I've lost you already, um, it's okay. That lost me a little bit. I was like, he does what? Um, just picture this. So a crowded club with loud driving music, all sorts of lights kind of shining through fog machines, large projector screens with uh, different busy sorts of uh, visuals. Um, and Jake, he's orchestrating the whole thing, right? Jake's job is to create this experience for people. Kind of the kind of place Hirsch hangs out all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so just picture her, picture the lights and the fog machine. Um, so Jake, Jake who orchestrates this experience, he grew up actively engaged in the church, but like a lot of young adults, as he moved away from home, kind of started his own life, he kind of drifted away from church. And while he remained kind of skeptical of church life, he was still looking for a sense of purpose, a sense of hope. And so he went with his parents back to church one time. And after his experience in the service, he reflected on some of what he observed. And he said, uh, the worship music was loud and energetic. The lights in the room were kind of highlighting different elements on the stage. The projector screens were projecting the lyrics with different backgrounds. It sounds like a familiar environment that might draw Jake and other wanderers like him back to church, right? Not quite. Um, Jake was actually put off by the noise of the service, the lights, the busyness. It actually caused some tension for him, and the author of the book says this about Jake's experience. When Jake steps foot in the church, he isn't hoping that it will look, sound, and feel like everything else he's a part of. He isn't searching for relevance. Jake is searching for transcendence. He's reluctantly stepping foot in a church in the hope that there might be something that he can't find anywhere else. Jake is looking for something timeless. And so Jake was looking for something when he went with his parents to that service, looking for something that he couldn't find in the world, but he stepped into church and found something that looked exactly like the world around him. And my sense, I can't speak for an entire generation, of course, but my sense is that people my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, um, just want the church to be real. We've been hurt too many times by churches who initially present something that's attractive and something relevant, but then when there's a bit of a peek behind the curtain, there's toxic cultures and leaders who aren't uh, leading well. Um, and so we don't want the church or need the church to be a mirror image of the world around us. We want it to be this set-apart place that will kind of transcend the cultural trends and fads that are so often changing around us. We talk about this similar sort of concept in youth ministry all the time with our volunteers. The last thing we want is for a youth ministry volunteer to show up to youth group and start talking like an eighth grader and start wearing the clothes that a middle schooler wears and start gossiping like some of the middle schoolers will do at times. <laughs> Students don't need someone who looks just like them and acts just like them. All students are looking for is someone who's going to listen to them, encourage them, and genuinely just care for them, no matter what they look like or act like. And the same goes for church. Generally, the young people of today don't need all the production, the lights, the sounds, hmm. the activity. They just want a place with real depth 
and a real concern for the people around them in the community. They don't uh, need the church to be somewhere impressive. They just want it to be somewhere genuine that they can go. Reading this book, Analog Church, confirmed a number of things for me that I've been feeling and wrestling with. And after reading it, I told our staff, hey, we need to read this. So we got copies for them. After we read it, we had our church board read it as well and discuss it. Um, Before I flesh things out a bit more, let me be clear that our goal in this series isn't to denigrate online church or to be critical of people who are worshiping online. Online church serves an important role, and I can't see McBick for, I can't foresee a time when McBick doesn't have online services. But rather than viewing online church as a substitute for in-person worship, I view our services online as kind of a bridge that help people initially connect or stay connected with our in-person community. And there are a couple of important audiences that I think the online service serves in our church family. First, it can be a great blessing to people who are part of our church and aren't physically able to get here. I think of Howard Featherman, who, with his wife Mary, who passed away a number of years ago, was attended our church for nearly 40 years. But he's 96 years old, and because of his physical constraints and some things, he's not able to get here and worship with us in person. I also think of the growing number of people who spend time each year avoiding our cold Pennsylvania winters in Florida. Uh, Specifically, I want to give a shout out to Dave and Jill Yinger, who right now might be watching our service lounging by a pool. And Dave and Jill, if you are, have a good time for a couple weeks, but the grass is growing here and we need you to come back and be part of our mowing team. Online service can also be a blessing when we have inclement weather that makes it difficult for people to drive to church or when people are sick or on vacation and can't attend. Another online audience that maybe you have or haven't thought about is people who are kind of checking out our church. Increasingly, people are very leery of showing up in person at a church they don't know anything about or haven't visited. Uh, Just last week or the week before, I was talking with somebody who attends here now and said, I watched services here for a couple weeks online just to get a feel for who you were and whether or not I felt like I could connect there and be accepted. We welcome those who aren't able to worship with us in person or who are checking out our church online. But this is an important statement. It's critical that all of us understand that worshiping online is a poor substitute for worshiping with our church family in person. We'll never discourage anyone from worshiping with us virtually But online worship can't take the place of face-to-face contact with our church family and experiencing God's presence as we meet. We welcome, uh, again, all of those who are worshiping with us online, but I hope this really challenges you as we walk through the series. I'd like to share a quote with you from Scott McKnight, who wrote a foreword to the book Analog Church that I think really touches on some key ideas about this. He says, For some people, Christianity is digital. God sent a message to us, and we either believe it or not. But God didn't just send a message. He sent his son, born of a real woman. Jesus grew up and became a real man and found real humans to follow him in extending his kingdom in a broken and wound, and who were broken and wounded in his part of the world. If Jesus is God incarnate, then God chose to reveal himself in analog, not digital. You can communicate a message in words, but you can't see the revelation of God except in the person of Jesus. Church is the same way. We can communicate conveniently and quickly in digital formats, but we can't get to know one another apart from embodied realities. One can't do church digitally. 
The important things about church life are all embodied. Knowing one another, loving one another, sitting and standing and praying with one another, listening to the sermon and watching the tone of the words and the movement of the body when we sing, and walking forward to take communion. These are the things that make a church a church. The important things about church life are all embodied. I think that's a good summary of what we're trying to do this morning in the service. And I don't think there's a more um, clear picture of that than what we see in the book of Acts with the kind of very first, um, one of the very first iterations of what we might call church. So we're going to read a little passage from Acts, but I want to set the stage a little bit. So Jesus has, has come, he's ministered, he's died, he's risen again, he's ascended into heaven. And as promised, when Jesus left this world, the Holy Spirit came to, to dwell with people. And so God's people have just been filled with the Spirit. Uh, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, has just given this message where thousands come and believe and are baptized, becoming Christians. And this here in Acts is kind of the first description that we have of that new group of, of believers, what we might call the church. So this is from Acts chapter 2. You can follow along as I read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want us to especially take note of these words that point to just how embodied, how physical, how analog, if you will, this expression of church was. We read things like they devoted themselves to fellowship, the believers were together, had everything in common, they broke bread, meaning they ate together, they met in their homes and in the temple. And of course, digitally meeting wasn't an option for the early church, but I think the values behind these practices that we read about really point to the importance of physical embodied presence with each other. This very early gathering of believers, it shows that there is something about being together, about sharing meals and sharing living and meeting spaces, face-to-face -face, face -face fellowship. That's an expression of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, these people have just been filled with the Spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit, and their first response is to gather together with each other. I think that's really telling. There's something about God's presence coming to dwell in us that causes us to, to draw together with each other, maybe in some way be attracted to the presence of God and other people. And so something about being filled with the Spirit, being a home, a house, a temple of God's Spirit, should cause us to come together rather than scatter out together into our own individual devices and, and locations. The words that Evan used, embodied and physical, describe what was happening in the early church. An important word that I believe summarizes those words is incarnational. Incarnational describes Jesus coming to earth as a human being, as well as his plan for his followers to demonstrate him to their world after his ascension. And as I thought about this concept and preaching to you today, I thought about John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, the first couple of verses, oozes with the idea of incarnation, and I'd like to read those verses for you today. 
In the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down to verse 14. The Word, again, capital W, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'd like to pull out a couple of ideas that I think are prominent in that, in that scripture that I read. Uh, first of all, I find it fascinating that John describes Jesus as the Word, capitalized. There's a oneness between the person of Jesus Christ and the spoken, written Word of God. God's Word, His message, Jesus, was given to us in the form of a person, and He was with God from the beginning. Jesus was with God, and he's the creator of all that is, and he's called the Word. Secondly, John emphasizes incarnation in this passage. God became human, one of us, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God had spoken through prophets and priests. He gave his word to Moses in the form of the law and that included the Ten Commandments. At times, he spoke audibly, it appears in Scripture, to people like Abraham and, and Moses and others. But when God wanted to fully and clearly reveal his identity to us, he became one of us by sending Jesus to live among us. And Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the perfect and full representation of who God is. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. That's what the New Testament teaches, tells us. The Gospels tell us that Jesus' incarnational ministry is then carried on by you and me. Now, that's a very daunting thing, and when Jesus first said it to his disciples, they kind of backed up and said, what do you mean that it's going to be better for us after you leave? But we came to find out, after the day of Pentecost, that what Jesus intended was that his very spirit, the Holy Spirit, was going to live inside of you and me, inside of people who had made that decision to embrace Christ and, and make him part of their lives incarnational ministry happens face to face, person to person, as Jesus' presence connects with people through our conversation, our touch, our prayers, our human connection. Incarnational ministry loses something significant when it's limited to digital rather than in person or analog connection. I frequently text with my daughter who's in college and she'll frequently send prayer requests and I'll shoot back a prayer to her uh, over, the, over the phone, over the text. Well, that's powerful, and I believe God hears and answers those prayers, but that's not as the same thing as me being able to kind of place her hands on her or hug her and pray God's blessing over her. And so that incarnational ministry, we believe, is really important. Third, verse 11 tells us that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. John uses the words grace and truth to summarize Jesus' nature. And as Jesus' followers, you and I are called to embody the grace and truth of Jesus as we interact with others in a broken world. Now, I would submit to you that truth can be shared in written form or it can be spoken across the airwaves, but grace loses something significant if we, attend to, if we intend to convey it digitally. Grace, I believe, 
can only fully be received in person or face-to-face. Yeah, so we've kind of laid the foundation for maybe the differences between analog, digital, how that interacts with our faith. Um, We've been kind of thinking big picture, but we want to end kind of by zooming in a little bit on our own personal everyday lives and think about technology's impact there and kind of maybe what we might do about it, how we might respond. So in Analog Church, it's pointed out that technology offers us three primary things, maybe a lot, but three primary things. One, it offers us speed, right? We can get things done a lot quicker, uh, more efficiently with technology. Two, it offers us choices. There's now basically an endless array of options of things to watch, to read, to play. So it offers us choices. And third, it offers us individualism. We can customize everything from our phones to our computers to our TVs to be exactly the way we want it, exactly how we would want it uh, to be for us. And some of those things aren't inherently bad, right? I like getting things done efficiently. I would pass on the offer to use a word processor right now. I'm good with my laptop. Um, Me too. But as those things... As those things are offered to us, the speed, the choices, and we embrace them more fully, they actually begin to form us in a way and to make us into certain types of people. Uh, Whether we realize it or not, the speed that we've grown accustomed to will start to make us impatient, right? We'll get frustrated when things don't happen exactly when we want them to happen, the way we want them to happen. The choices that we're offered will start to make us shallow. As we kind of jump around and skim the surface of so many different options, we rarely dig deeply into any one thing, and so the choices can make us shallow. And third, this kind of customization, individualization, it'll start to make us isolated because we'll start to care only about what's easiest, what's most convenient for me, and we'll then lose connection to the people around us. And so that kind of sounds like a bit of a bummer way to start to end this sermon. It sounds like it'd be kind of hard to avoid those consequences given how saturated our world is with technology right now. There's a lot that you're seeing even in this moment when you go home. But the good news for us as the church, as the people of God, as a community here at McBick, the good news is that as people who follow Jesus and worship him together, we're maybe better positioned than anyone else uh, to resist the ways that technology forms us and to, um, yeah, resist the way that we might be shaped by these things that technology offers us. Listen to what Jay Kim says in his book, Analog Church, which I believe is really kind of his, his premise for the book. He said, I believe the answer is going analog. People are hungry for human experiences, and the church is perfectly positioned to offer exactly that. In fact, the church is fundamentally designed and intended to create spaces and opportunities for people from all walks of life to experience true human flourishing in real time and real space. Unlike anything else in our culture today, the church can invite people to gather in the flesh and to experience the hope that Jesus offers. Face-to-face community... Personal interaction is foundational to what it means to be part of a church family. Now, to those of us who are worshiping online this morning, I'm glad to have you tune in with us. I hope that you've been ministered to as we sang together and as Evan and I have spoke this morning. If you're able, I want to encourage you to take the risk of joining with us in person. There's an amazing group of people out here who will welcome and love you 
and assist you in connecting with Jesus. And if you're here in person this morning, I also have a challenge for you. I'm asking you to do a quick inventory, a quick assessment, and ask yourself these questions. Are you deeply connected in relationship with others here at McBick? Secondly, is the Holy Spirit stirring a desire in your heart for you to more deeply know and love others and to be known and loved by others? If you've answered yes to either of those questions, I also want to encourage you to take a risk by connecting with one of our adult Bible fellowship groups that meet on Sunday morning or talking with me or one of our pastors about serving on one of our ministry teams like First Impressions or in children or youth ministry, or perhaps by joining one of our missional communities that care for people who are in need in our community. I've seen great growth and discipleship happen as people join together in serving and ministering to others. God has designed each of us to need community, and his church is a great place to connect with people and ultimately with him. Now, Evan's going to pray for us in a moment, but I want to tell you that next week, Pastor Jen and I are going to preach. I won't have a suit on then, but we're going to preach on the theme, knowing God's word and incorporating into our lives in a digital age. And throughout this series, we're going to look at different aspects of church and see how we can continue to embrace the core of what those things are in the midst of a digital age. Evan? So I'm going to pray for us, but I do hope that you hear our heart behind it. You don't need to go throw away your phone or burn your laptop or anything. We really, we want to be people who look like Jesus. And the reality is that we can be formed very easily in this world. And so the more that we give our attention and our devotion to things that that glow and that buzz and all of that, we can be formed by those things instead of by Jesus. So I just want to pray a prayer and encourage you to kind of pray along with me that we would, whether we're using technology to a great degree or a lesser degree, that Jesus would be the ultimate one who is shaping us and is making us into people who embody the fruits of the Spirit. So would you join me in prayer? God, we first, we do thank you for the gift of technology. We believe that you've given humans the ability to create and design new things. There's um, amazing things that happen because of technology, but we also realize that there's um, some challenges and some dangers to them. So I pray right now for myself personally, for those listening, that you would teach us what it means to look to you, Jesus, to be formed by your character and your heart, to use our technology wisely. God, would you remind us of your coming down to earth as a person? You could have just sent us a little soundbite or sent us some words, but you came as a person and you continue to come to each of us as a person, as the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So we open our hearts, we open our minds, we open our lives to you to work inside of us in this world that, like I said, is saturated by technology, but God, you can cut through all of that noise as you interact with each of us. So we open ourselves to your shaping of us, of your forming of us, and ask that you'd make us people who look like you, Jesus, in this technological world, God. We thank you for this community of believers right here and the chance we have to worship together, to sing together. I ask that as we do sing this last song, we would really embrace the joy of hearing each other's voices, of standing, of lifting our hands together, of praising you, God. We thank you for this gift of community. We love you. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen.